So I come from a family of storytellers. Every time my family gets together, which is rather frequently, it invariably becomes a hodgepodge of stories. Whether it's stories about the day, about the week, about other family members, etc. And oftentimes one story begets another. Ultimately the story, stories turn from the present to the past. The family history is passed down in story form. This past week was the five-year anniversary of the time that my brother-in-law drove a golf cart into a lake. And I stood at the top of the hill taking pictures on my cell phone. So, I gotta tell you though, as much as I have made this exercise sound proper, even eloquent, it can actually be a little annoying because it's the same stories every time. I have heard the story about my grandfather coming home from World War II literally 400 times, told the exact same way every single time. But through it all, I have learned two things. One, my family's history, and two, how to identify a good story. You see, when you come from a family of storytellers, you easily see what makes a story good. The characters, the plot twists, the drama, the intrigue, how it all weaves together oh so wonderfully. The stories we have told so far in this sermon series on the women of the Bible have all been, in my estimation, really good stories. But if I'm honest, today's is my favorite. It has everything, great characters, a wonderful plot, rivals, drama, miracles. It's wonderfully done and it has the perfect ending. Today we are going to talk about Hannah. But first, let me give it some context. The last two weeks we have read the stories of Deborah and then of Naomi and Ruth. Those stories occurred during the time when the judges ruled over Israel. Deborah herself was a judge. And the judges were kind of ad hoc leaders that God would provide Israel in times of trouble and threat. In peacetime, the judges would, rule, would, would settle civil disputes. But that was how Israel was ruled. There was no king. There was no ruling council. God was their king. God had given them their law in Torah, so, that was, so all that was needed was a judiciary branch to settle disputes in the law. There's just a small problem. The book of Judges sees Israel in this endless loop of forgetting all that God had done for them, doing evil in the sight of God, being threatened by one of the people groups in the land, being saved by God through a judge, forgetting what God had done for them, doing evil in the sight of God, etc., etc., etc. And the book, of, uh, the book of Judges ends by saying that in those days Israel had no king, and everyone did whatever they wanted. Instead of ending by talking about how God ruled over the land or how the judges mediated for the people, the book of Judges essentially ends by saying that Israel was in anarchy. This is clearly not a sustainable solution. Eventually the people of Israel are going to ask for a king so that they can be like all the other nations. They want consistency and they want security. They want to have someone they can look to, someone they can see who will embody all of these things. 
The question becomes, how will this king be chosen? And that's exactly where our story fits in. We are reading in 1 Samuel, the beginning, 1 Samuel 1. There was a certain man from Ramatham, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zopu, nope, Zof, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? So there is a wealthy man, Elkanah, and he has two wives, Peninnah and Hannah. He also has some children, but all of them are from Peninnah. And this is where our story begins. Elkanah is a religious man, and as a religious man, he would go to make sacrifices to God. He would also give portions to his family so that they might also sacrifice. And this is where our story gets interesting. Because we learn that he would give a double portion to his wife Hannah, because Hannah could not have children. And there's the conflict. And what's more, the other wife doesn't let Hannah forget about this. Hannah is cast as the tragic figure. She cannot give her husband a child and is stuck having to listen to the other wife who has given him many children. This is indeed a sad place for Hannah to be. Not only is she grieving her own inability to have children, but she is also dealing with a nagging, biting, mean rival. It's clear that Hannah is heartbroken. After a while, Hannah becomes inconsolable, refusing to eat. Elkanah comes in to comfort her, and he says to her something quite interesting. He asks, am I not more to you than ten sons? Now, I must press pause on our story real quick to tell you something about myself. Underneath this tough, manly exterior, I am a hopeless romantic. I watch sports and wear football jerseys and soccer shirts, but I also watch The Bachelor. I'm okay, to, I'm okay admitting it. So when I hear this line, am I not more to you than ten sons, I really think Elkanah is being rather sweet. Isn't he being quite the romantic? We hear this emotionally. However, there is a very real economic aspect of this question. In the ancient world, husbands and sons were the economic safety nets for women. A good husband was a, and a salary with benefits were one and the same. A son and a 401k were the same thing in the ancient world. 
For women to survive their adult years, they needed to marry. For women to survive their elder years, they needed to bear sons. Okana is not just saying something romantic. He is also saying something economic. His comments are still sweet, don't get me wrong. He is promising to take care of her throughout her life. He is promising to be there for her. But to ignore the economics of it misses what makes Hannah's plight urgent and real. She is not just worried that she will never be a mother, though that would be worry enough. But she is also terrified about what will become of her life if she cannot bear a son. How will she eat? Where will she live? Will growing older for her just mean growing poorer until she dies in the street? What will become of her life? We jump back into the biblical text. Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting in his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remem remember me, and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back, home to their, went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. Hannah is not to be deterred. She brings her sacrifice to God and prays that God would give her a son. I am sure, I am quite sure that this is not the first time she prayed to God that God would give her a child. I imagine this was a yearly, monthly, weekly, perhaps daily ritual for her. But the story tells us that she makes a vow to God. If God would give her a son, then she would give the child back to God. Once again, I have to press pause. Because I was told growing up that God doesn't make bargains. That's like youth group 101. God doesn't make deals. I mean, I still tried it. But even though I promised to pray every day for a month, I could never get a date with Kelly. It's a little joke just for you, just for free. But in this instance, it does appear that God was interested in playing Let's Make a Deal. Because God listens. God sees that Hannah is at the end of her rope. God sees that Hannah is at a loss. God sees and has compassion. The priest, on the other hand, not so much. The priest thinks she's drunk. Have you ever prayed so fervently someone thought you were drunk? 
I have no idea what that looks like. But she assures him that she is praying to God. She assures him that she is truly anguished and is bringing her problems to God. And the priest blesses her. Hannah returns home with a new heart. She eats again. She lives again. And in time, she gets pregnant. God gives her a child. She names the child Samuel to commemorate what God has done. And that's where this portion of our story ends. And it ends well, doesn't it? The conflict, Hannah not having a child, is resolved. God showed up and did a great thing. Everyone is happy, right? Hannah knows she will be taken care of, if not by her husband, then by her son. But yet, there's still one thing left hanging out there. One loose end that hasn't quite been tied up. That agreement that Hannah made with God. But I'm not really convinced that we want to be reminded of that part of the story. Wouldn't it be easier for us to just not have to deal with it? Wouldn't it be easy, easier for us to have it end with Hannah getting what she wants, with God doing something great, and then we can get on with our lives? Oh, sure, Hannah remembers what God has done. She is grateful and gives God credit. We're okay with that. We can admit that God is a part of the good things that happen in our lives. And we'll be thankful. But that's where we'd like our stories to end. Wouldn't it be great if we could just imagine that the story ended here? That way we can live our lives without the Bible or Christianity stepping on our toes. Without it demanding anything of us. Unfortunately, today we're going to have to get a little uncomfortable. Because the story does have more to go. We're going to have to deal with the Bible asking us to go further because Hannah herself went further. We're going to have to deal with God making claims on our life because Hannah realized that God had a claim on her life, or more specifically, on her son's life. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him, only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli and said to him, Pardon me, my Lord. As surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. You see, after the child is born, Hannah remembers that she has her end of the deal to uphold. So she nurtures the child until he was old enough to survive outside her care and takes the child back to the priest. She says to the priest, remember me? I am that woman who prayed to the Lord for a child. I'm the one you thought was drunk. God gave me a child and I am here to give that child to God. 
As long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. Then the story truly ends with these words, she left him there for the Lord. Now that's an ending. Anything else does not do justice to what has been built so far. While we might like to forget about the deal that Hannah made with God, Hannah certainly can't. That's not who she is. A true servant of God, she knows that God's work requires a response from her. It's not enough for her to get what she wants. It's not enough to give God credit and be thankful. No, being a true servant of God requires a further step. It means fulfilling our end of the deal. It means stepping up. But this takes faith. For Hannah, this meant being right back in the same position of economic uncertainty. It takes faith to believe that everything will be okay. To believe in Elkanah, but even more to believe in God. It takes faith to hold up our end of the deal because it leaves us vulnerable. It leaves Hannah vulnerable. But throughout the story, Hannah had to have faith and Hannah learned what it was to have faith. Hannah had to have trust and she learned what it was to have trust. It took faith and trust to bear her heart to God. It took faith and trust to leave it up to God. And it is that same faith and trust that allows her to respond to God, to keep up her end of the deal. Hannah had faith. Hannah had trust. The question is, do we? You see, at one time or another, all of us have been in a similar situation to Hannah's. Economic, emotional, relational. We have all had times of tragedy. We have all needed God to work in our lives. And God has worked in our lives. We are all where we are, richly blessed because of God's work in our lives. And by the virtue of being here, we have made promises. In baptism, becoming members of the church, in the liturgy for Holy Communion, we have made promises to God. We have made promises and God has shown up keeping his promises, keeping up his end of the bargain. The only question is, where does our story end? Where does the story end? Does it end with God doing his part and us here in church saying thank you? Or does it continue? Does it continue with us giving back to God all that we have? Giving our money, giving our time, being in ministry and mission in the world, working at a food bank, doing disaster recovery, going to an impoverished country, raising your children in a Christian home, raising another person's child so that child doesn't grow up in an orphanage. The possible endings are limitless. The only question is, which is yours? We're going to gather in groups, in small groups again, to talk about some questions from this story, to try and connect with each other and connect with Scripture. And here are your two questions today. When has God helped you in a time of trouble? And how did you, have you, and will you respond to God's work in your life? Discuss.
So I said our, the context for our story this morning was um, eventually Israel's cry for a king. Samuel grows up um, in the, the temple at Shiloh with Eli. <clears throat> and it's Samuel 